Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm Dylan Matthews. I'm a senior correspondent at Fox. Here with me today are regular Weeds hosts, Herman Lopez and Jerusalem Demsis. And today we are going to be talking about means testing. So as we're recording this, Democrats in Congress are trying to hammer out their big social spending plan for the fall of 2021. Initially in the budget, they were promising $3.5 trillion in spending over a decade on everything from climate measures to pre-K to childcare to care for elderly and disabled people. And a big flashpoint that has come up as they try to negotiate this and try to get the package to a level where moderate Democrats will agree and, and get it to Biden's desk is who gets these benefits. That it's it's sort of a grab bag of expansions to the social safety net. And a recurring question uh, in all such expansions is who, whom? Is it a universal program? Is it a limited program? And I think a particularly live dispute here is with the child tax credit. Uh, As listeners may, may recall, for the first time ever, poor Americans without any work income qualify for the child tax credit and have been getting monthly payments of up to $300 per month per kid. And it seems like there's some Democratic resistance to that continuing, which raises a bunch of questions about the future of means testing. So, Herman, walk us through what's what's happening there. Sure. So right now, the the biggest point of contention seems to be Joe Manchin essentially saying that uh, he knows a bunch of people who are very high income and we're still getting the child tax credit. On the other end of that, he also thinks that some of the people who are getting the child tax credit should be meeting work requirements, that they should be trying to get a job. I mean, the way he framed it is like, shouldn't we make it so these kids have working parents? Like, wouldn't be that that be the best thing for them? And first of all, child tax credits. Think about this. If it's child tax credit, you want to help the children and the parents that are basically providing for those children. There's no work requirements whatsoever. There's no education requirements whatsoever for better skill sets. Don't you think if we're going to help the children that the people should make some effort? And essentially, this is like going back to like an old style of politics, with which I think kind of goes back to the 90s in some ways, where they're just like saying like, look, people should be trying to work. There should be really narrow bands here on, on who qualifies for these programs. 
But I think it's just worth putting it in context of like what this child tax credit expansion was supposed to be in the first place, which is that it was supposed to be pretty close to universal, especially for these low-income families. It kind of goes into how the child tax credit used to work, but but essentially you had to meet certain income thresholds before to get the full credit. And what Democrats changed with the economic relief package earlier this year was that, look, uh, no matter your like how low your income is, you will get at least like you will get this and then they be like it phases out the higher your income goes. And the idea really was universality for at least these low income people. Even then, it's, it's worth noting some people still miss child tax credits by some estimates. It's in the millions because the federal government just does not have records for them, whether it's uh, because they didn't file taxes before or something else. That means that even though the goal was universality, some people are still being missed. One thing I just find interesting here is if you look at the Republican proposal on a child allowance from Mitt Romney, I mean, I don't know how you can describe if you can necessarily describe it as a Republican proposal because not all Republicans are on board, but like this is a plan from the 2012 Republican presidential candidate who's now a senator from Utah, and he's his plan does not have work requirements. Like it is just it's a strange world where Joe Manchin is in many ways being more conservative than Mitt Romney. And I don't know that the watching this conversation unfold has been kind of frustrating because it seems like it in some ways it's trying to like step back from what the child tax credit was supposed to like the expanded one was supposed to accomplish originally. And also just I mean, this was this is supposed to be a big part of Biden's legacy now Uh, like this is. This is something they got done thinking that they'd be able to regularly extend it into the future. They like the thinking when you talk to Biden administration officials early on was like, look, we get this done for a year. People are going to see the benefits. People are going to post on TikTok how much they love this thing. And like, we'll have the public support for it. But I, I think Manchin has just essentially said, like, look, um, if, if, if kids' parents aren't working, then I guess like these kids should suffer. Because they they should not have as much income because the parent can't meet some work requirement or much more likely, which we'll probably talk about later, is they can't fill out this paperwork. They don't know how to fill out this paperwork. They can't meet the bureaucratic hurdles for it. And uh, that's put us in a really strange spot where not only is like a key part of Biden's legacy threatened by a Democrat now, but it's like a part of the legacy that like a Republican in the Senate would like to be essentially more liberal than Joe Manchin on. Yeah, and I think looking at the um, actual interview that Manchin does with Dana Bash, it happened like a little over a week ago, um, and she's asking him about this. He, he, he repeats like quite frequently, what's the urgency? Like, what's the urgency we have here? What's the urgency? What's the urgency that we have? It's not the same urgency that we have with the American Rescue Plan. We got that out the door quickly. That was about $2 billion, $2 trillion. And on top of that, you know, all the things we have with the CARES package, everything leading up to that. I kept watching afterwards and she immediately after interviews Bernie Sanders. And the, the interesting thing is Bernie immediately on his own immediately goes, there's a sense of urgency. Well, I mean, a few days here or there, it doesn't matter. But there is a sense of urgency. And the sense of urgency is that we live in a country today where the wealthiest people and the largest corporations are doing phenomenally well. 
while working class people are struggling all over this country. I think a lot of this is like temperamental and uh, like kind of extends beyond the policy specifics. And, and it really feels like Manchin doesn't understand why so much is changing so fast. And in some ways, he's right. I was like going through old, you know, Vox episodes the other day, and I saw this Ezra Klein interview that was done with Paul Krugman. And they were talking about how Hillary Clinton and Democrats were talking about how it would be ridiculous to pay for free college for Donald Trump's children. I'm a little different than those who say free for everybody. I am not in favor of making college free for Donald Trump's kids. I'm in favor of making college free for your grandson uh, by having no debt tuition. And I remember this moment, right? Like, I feel like everyone was just like, yeah, that's crazy. Like, how could we allow that to happen? And I think that the shift here, I think, is not sometimes not often appreciated, which I think is it's very good. Like, Democrats have moved really quickly, in, in my opinion, the right direction towards understanding that there, there are a lot of people left out when you try to implement programs like this. But I think that when you're talking about Manchin in particular, I mean, and if you walk through a lot of these interviews, it's not really specific policy arguments he's often articulating. It's this just general sense of discomfort with the speed at which we've changed on these issues and the feeling that he's like the lone sane individual in his caucus, which, you know, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> I, I have my doubts. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think if, if I wanted to have some cognitive empathy for, for a mansion and, and as, as many listeners will know, I've, I've been arguing for a fully refundable child tax credit for, for many years now. So I, I definitely disagree with Joe Manchin on this, but, but as Jerusalem was saying, Hillary Clinton's position in 2016 was not a fully refundable child tax credit. It was one that was bigger and would phase in faster for poor people, but that was still excluding people with zero dollars in cash income. And to be clear, like that's sometimes described as non-working people, but it's it's a lot of parents, it's a lot of unemployed folks, people on disability who have kids. Um, and so it's excluding a, a pretty big share of the population. That was the Democratic position five years ago. Joe Manchin got sold on an expansion of this temporarily for a like genuinely unprecedented pandemic-related economic emergency. And then suddenly a year later, everyone's like, psych, we want to make it like at least parts of it permanent and, and extend other parts of it for, for many years with the all but stated intention of making it all permanent. And I, I can understand how he feels a, a little blindsided by that. Um but I think there's there's also some interesting sort of political incentives he's responding to here. One like weird fact of of American political life that like I've seen in some of my reporting on uh, sort of going to rural communities and talking about disability insurance that you see in in books like Jennifer Selva's uh, "We're Still Here," which is sort of a, an ethnography of a working class community in in Pennsylvania. There's a lot of like paranoia about welfare programs, and it's it's paranoia that's not like rich people worried that we're we're subsidizing the underclass. It's by working class, middle class, often actively poor households worried that other people are getting one over on them. Um, so I was in Tennessee working on a story on on disability insurance, and multiple people who were on disability insurance would tell me, you know. I, I don't support expanding it because, you know, I know all these people who are just like hooked on on Oxy uh, who got on disability and like they don't deserve it. It's, it should be limited to like deserving people like me. And it's really unfair. And uh, Silva in her book, like talks to multiple people talking about how there are people in their town who get on food stamps and buy steaks and feed the steaks to their dog. 
And, and like, I have no idea where that comes from. <laughs> I, I like, I strongly doubt that is a common phenomenon, but I think sometimes people have a mental model of mansion where he's sort of owned by wealthy donors. And I, I don't want to minimize the effect that campaign donations and corporate influence can have on politics. But I think some of it is, is an authentic expression of this kind of line of public opinion, uh, especially in sort of poor parts of Appalachia, like the ones he represents, where instead of a kind of solidaristic uh, we should all come together and fight for benefits we all get. There's there's a, a sort of splitting and splicing impulse to try to exclude people who are getting one over on you. I think another thing is just the, the politics of the moment right now are largely about bringing that $3.5 trillion price tag down. And obviously, if, if some people can't get the child tax credit now, the thinking is, uh, I, there's, I think there's reasons to doubt this thinking, but the thinking is that it would bring the price tag down since there would just be fewer people benefiting from the program. The thing that kind of throws a wrench in all of that is there are legitimate questions about like whether the administrative costs of like all this bureaucratic paperwork and like making sure people actually meet work requirements is actually cheaper than like getting some people off the rolls there. And then there, there are also questions about how politically sustainable programs are when they're universal versus not. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm honestly not I don't think there's like very good research either way or like evidence either way on like whether making a program universal makes it suddenly much more sustainable. The thinking basically is, is like, look, if everybody in the U.S. is benefiting from this program, then like everybody's going to support it. And that's better than low income people supporting it. Uh, that kind of comes into conflict with the fact that like Medicaid is definitely a means tested program, mainly for low people and people with disabilities. And it has massively expanded over the decades. Republicans have tried and they have just completely failed at doing anything close to repealing or really cutting down on the Medicaid expansion as much as they would like. But the general point is that the politics here are like bringing down the price tag from that $3.5 trillion. And one way of doing that is just by having less money to send out, essentially, because fewer people are qualifying. And I think that's a, a big part of what Manchin's goal is here. I mean, during the CNN interview, where he talked about all of this, he refused to give a number as to like what specific price tag he wants for the reconciliation bill. But he was clear that he does, he thinks $3.5 trillion is too high. And I think there's this like, part of this too, is just a lack of understanding that what either government's going to spend a lot of its administrative capacity trying to help people who are on the fringes who do qualify for these programs and who do need the help getting it or it's going to spend its time trying to vet to make sure you like really deserve it and often i think that people like want there to be this like perfect way to implement some sort of like means testing or figuring out whether people have actual like dessert claims to these government benefits in a way that you know, the end result is that the people who deserve it end up getting it. But like that doesn't happen. The people who deserve it the most or who need it the most, I'm not going to make like moral claims here, people who need it the most based on their income level or like what it would do to raise their uh, welfare of themselves and their children are the ones who end up missing out. And like I was looking through all the things that the White House is trying to currently do to make sure that the child tax credit reaches eligible families. Like you can scroll the page for like 30 seconds. It's so long about how many different methods are going through HUD um, to access people in supportive housing. They're launching a partnership with Head Start. They're doing all these different things to try to make sure that there are, you know, thousands of trained individuals who are, you know, child tax credit navigators or things like that. And all of this is the administrative state deciding 
that when it comes to this tax credit, the goals are going to be ensuring that the marginalized populations get access to these benefits. And the response of, oh, what if some people higher up on the income ladder who don't deserve it get it is weird because like, is it really the optimal use of government time and policy to be vetting if a few extra people who like didn't really need it, however you want to define it, don't get that money? And I think that people often are not being uh, presented with this trade-off in this way. And they're being told like, no, we just need to make sure that people can get it the right way. But when those things get implemented, that's not what happens. Happens. Like what happens is that a bunch of poor people don't get the access that they need. Just to add one point to that, I, I we, we talked about like how there was uh, like the politics have changed on this really quickly, and in some ways, Manchin feels blindsided, and I think that's true. But I think it's also important to put this in the context of the COVID pandemic. Like, if there is a reason to speed up your politics in the last year and a half, it is the fact that like the country just went through like a complete shitstorm of a disease outbreak. And as a result of that, like lots of people felt huge, huge problems in their lives from like parents not having a reliable place to drop off their kids while having to work at home, while feeling like they're going to lose their jobs or actually losing their jobs and not feeling like they can keep up with their bills, on and on and on. I mean, a large point of this reconciliation bill, if you just look at all of these measures, is to respond to COVID and say, like, look, these problems became very obvious in the last year and a half. We need to do something about it. And, like, given the like the actual urgency of the problem that we're still in the middle of this pandemic, the Biden administration, a lot of Democrats have said, like, yeah, we're going to take big steps here. But, like, given what we all just went through, it's it's definitely warranted. Manchin doesn't seem to agree with that, obviously, but it is just worth putting in that context because Democrats aren't just like trying to take advantage of the situation to pass stuff that they've like believed in all along. A lot of the caucus, I think, would not have supported this three years ago, two years ago, but like things changed a lot in the last year and a half. Yeah, and I think it's it's kind of a it raises this bigger philosophical question about how you understand what happened with COVID. I remember when when the Cares Act passed, that was the the first sort of checks going out bill in in March 2020. I was very enthusiastic about it and and was sort of arguing that giving unrestricted checks to to almost everyone in the country was was this big unprecedented thing that that might sort of permanently change the way we do social welfare policy. And I think there were two schools of thought on that. Uh, there was the, the the very exuberant school that I was a part of. Um, I think Adam Tews, an economic historian at, at Columbia, has a whole book on on how COVID broke neoliberalism. Uh, Zach Beecham has a, an interview with him that you can read on, on Vox.com. But I think there was, there was another school of thought, which some sort of sociologists and economists I talked to sort of echoed, which was, it's an emergency. People do weird stuff in emergencies. Like, America set up a universal daycare system during World War II because men were at the front, women were expected to do factory work, and you needed somewhere to park the kids. And sort of in moments of like extreme honest-to-God emergency, you can sort of rethink things dramatically for a few years and then go back to the way things were. Like, we do not have a universal daycare system growing out of, of World War II. And I, I saw where those people were coming from, and I think Manchin, to some degree, is of that school of thought, but it doesn't have to be true. Like the counterpoint of the daycare example is that Britain set up a national system of government-owned hospitals in part in response to the Blitz and in response to the fact that they had like genuine emergency medical needs in the midst of World War II. 
And instead of dismantling that, they called it the National Health Service, and it continues to exist to this day. And I think sort of the big philosophical question for Democrats is, do we want to do that? Do we want to use this as a chance to institutionalize these emergency measures and, and make them part of a new governing order coming out of the emergency? Or like Manchin seems to, do we want to say, like, this was an experiment in a, uh, an extreme time. Let's go back to normal. Let's take a break. And when we come back, let's let's talk more about sort of where means testing goes from here and, and what we can learn about means testing from COVID. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. Trying to keep up with the political news cycle in 2023 can sometimes feel like staring into a black hole of information, where hundreds of thousands of opinions and facts get sucked in and distorted. We know it's a lot, even if you're listening to The Weeds every week. You all know, in order for the average person to stay capital I informed, it can help to find and listen to sources who are working to cut through the noise and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. Not Another Politics Podcast tries to do just that. It was launched and produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. It's not a pundits and politicians podcast. Rather, it takes a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but here are just a few that you can listen to right now. Whether or not ousting incumbents improves the economy, the extent to which white Americans favor white politicians, and what happens when Fox News viewers tune into CNN instead for a month. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. I love hosting people, so I know that having family or friends stay the night might seem like a great idea until you find yourself scrambling for extra cushions. Or worse, scrounging up an air mattress only to realize it has a hole in it. Well, you won't need to worry about any of that with Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa. Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa can make your guests feel at home. It's an everyday sofa that easily converts into a queen-size bed that they say comfortably sleeps two people. The Shift Sleeper Sofa has layers of memory foam, therapeutic comfort foam, and a supportive core foam to provide an amazing night's sleep for your guests. And like all of Burroughs Furniture, it's a breeze to get in your home with a painless online shopping experience and free shipping to your door. You can check out Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa and all their furniture at burrow.com slash weeds and get 15% off your Burrow order when you do. That's burrow.com slash weeds for 15% off your Burrow purchase. Burrow.com slash weeds. All right. Uh, so Joe Manchin is, is pushing back on the child tax credit. There's a lot else in this bill that that is sort of affected by by means testing politics. And I wanted to sort of harken back to something that Herman was saying about this long-standing debate about uh, whether means-tested programs are poor programs. This is sometimes sort of phrased as programs for the poor are poor programs. How much do you guys buy that? And, and sort of how much does that consideration sort of affect how you think about this bill? I think... I think the the politics of this feels like in some ways just unfalsifiable and we're going to have this argument for the rest of our lives about <laughs> this. And I, I honestly think part of it is just that I, I don't really care about whether or not that that's true and that, you know, it's not really relevant. I mean, it obviously is relevant in terms of whether or not these things end up, you know, 
being vastly supported. But I think that matters a lot more in how they're messaged than anything else. Like you have polls that show, hey, like, is it really good to make sure that, you know, we're reducing child poverty? And then everyone's like, yeah, child poverty, want to reduce that. And then people are like, should we give unrestricted checks to parents whether or not they're working? And people are like, no, they should work. And it's just like really hard to tell from issue polling like this, what the tipping point is for people supporting or not supporting a program. And so like, you know, there's a bunch of polls in either direction here. I think that like for a long time, universality was kind of like what thought, uh, there's this general thought this was better. There's like now more recent like stuff. I mean, especially when we're looking at what Dylan, um, you were talking about last segment about how, um, you know, a lot of the working poor kind of get upset at the idea that non-working poor are benefiting from these programs. And, you know, I don't think those things happen in a vacuum, though. I think those things happen because, you know, you're inundated with messages all the time. I mean, for decades about like welfare queens and like racist assumptions about who benefits from welfare. And even to this day, when people are asked about the proportion of individuals who benefit from these programs, they vastly overestimate how many black people are are, 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 are benefiting relative to the fact that mostly um, it, it's a white program just based on the population statistics of the United States of America. And so I, I think there's something here where it's like it's almost inextricable from the messaging that's been done by both the Democratic and Republican Party for decades on this sort of thing. And so to me, it's like, I think it's very likely that if you had a concerted effort from a unified Democratic Party to talk about what these things do for the economy, that you could change a lot of these assumptions on the ground about who this is helping. And I also think that, you know, we saw during COVID this kind of willingness to say that, like, in emergencies, these things are, you know, we should everyone should come together. This is something where, like, you know, no one's responsible for the deadly pandemic coming into play. And I think trying to take that ethos into other things like no one's I mean, uh, saying that, like, you're not responsible if you're homeless, you're not responsible if, you know, uh, if the housing market has priced you out for like whatever reason. And so I, I think that like that is something that politicians have a lot of control over. And often we treat it as like this kind of like natural artifact, like whether or not people support something, it's like very dependent to what we are saying about it from the federal level. And, um, you know, the fact that we were able to do it in COVID should just embolden us to realize that we could do it with more things. Yeah, I agree with everything Jerusalem just said, but just to add a bit to that, it's like No, you I, can stop. That's fine. <laughs> uh, just just to add a bit to that is it's just like essentially the structure and culture of these programs matters a ton. And this this idea that like programs for the poor are poor programs, like I don't know if that's generally true, but what I do know is like there are often examples that run in the other direction. So like just as one example. Obviously, K-12 schooling in the U.S. is universal. There are definitely really bad schools. And a lot of that has to do because property tax structures, like these programs are built on like local property taxes and all of that. And that means that these a lot of these low-income schools, which are in areas with houses that just aren't valued as high as other houses, uh, they, they just get less money, less revenue. And so the schools, as a result, are much worse off. On the other side of that, I went to Virginia a few years ago to see their Medicaid program is doing some stuff with opioid addiction, just like essentially making it so they're paying treatment providers more for addiction treatment. And the idea was that they would essentially be able to like get more people under Medicaid coverage because they were offering higher payments. And one of the things I thought was interesting is I heard this repeatedly from official after official is that they said, I would rather be on Medicaid than my private health insurance. And it's like, Okay, I mean that that speaks to like how how botched this whole system is because <laughs> all all of a sudden like even like private health insurance isn't competing with Medicaid, but like at, at the same time it, it it shows that like yes this can go in the other direction if the people overseeing the program are taking it seriously that this should be a good program. So 
I think it, the only reason I emphasize is because I think means testing in general is not going to go away anytime soon. So the goal should be until we can just make everything universal, if that ever happens, should be to like just make these programs good. And the fact that there are examples of like means tested programs like Medicaid that can be pretty good, uh, I think speaks to the fact that like we can do this, should do this. And maybe we shouldn't just like give up on the entire concept because in the meantime, until you get to Medicare for all, a lot of people are going to suffer if you don't like actually improve the the structure of Medicaid. I think it also depends where where the means testing is happening. So we we've served in sort of speaking in the same breath of of means testing at the bottom. Um, so uh, you have to meet a work requirement or or make a certain amount of money to qualify for for a tax credit, say as the way that the, the child tax credit used to work or that the earned income tax credit works right now versus sort of top end means testing. So in, in Medicaid, so you lose eligibility pretty fast. Um, I think it's around the poverty line in, in most places, or 133% of the poverty line if you you did the Obamacare expansion. And then you have like very top-end means testing, which seems to be only getting more popular. So the child tax credit actually has two top-end means tests under under what Biden did. So under the existing law that the Trump sort of in the, the Trump tax bill created. The credit started to phase out at around two hundred thousand in income for single people, four hundred thousand in income for for married people. Um, so very, very high end. You you are very comfortable if you're starting to see it phase out. And Biden and I think his caucus and Congress didn't want the expansion to cost too much. So the expanded version actually phases out way before that. I think it's it's seventy five thousand, hundred fifty thousand for for married couples, something in between those for for head of household. And so that has not attracted a ton of anxiety. I think there people have a sense that this is an anti-poverty program. If you're making six figures, you're you're probably not the the target base for for an anti-poverty program. But I do think it matters, and, and it matters for political reasons. I like Herman. I'm sort of skeptical of the the blanket universal programs are more politically sound than the means-tested programs philosophy, but it might benefit to have more upper middle class people in your coalition defending a program. But also, it's just very administratively complicated. I write articles about the child tax credit, and I want to say when it phases out. But it's genuinely, there are like thousands of scenarios for when you would stop getting benefits based on how many kids you have, based on what your income is, based on your marital status. It's just like not summarizable in an article of non-tedious length. And that creates real administrative difficulties. And you've, you've seen this in various efforts to do sort of monthly payments, for instance. I think you might see a lot of situations where people who've been getting the full credit monthly over the, the past few months see it clawed back if they're slightly over a limit. That could create political problems. There was briefly an attempt to pay out the earned income tax credit uh, about a decade ago. Um, there was a program called uh, Advanced EITC and it was a debacle because people wound up owing money back to the government because it was really hard to estimate precisely month to month sort of what benefits they would get because of this complicated phase in phase out schedule. And so I think sort of where I worry about with those top end means tests is is just sort of administrative ability and, and the ability of, of people to sort of rely on a certain number of benefits. Uh, rather than getting into these sort of clawback patterns that just 
decrease their trust in government. Yeah, I mean, so like in 20, early 2010s or something like that, Steve Tellis, who's a political scientist at, uh, I think, Hopkins University, he coins this term called kludgeocracy. And it's kind of like getting at this kind of large, you know, morass that the American government bureaucracy has become, that it's like basically almost impossible for anyone to understand really how different levers of government are uh, changing them would change outcomes and that uh, untangling different programs is really difficult. And this happens for a variety of reasons. Some of it is kind of like what's been a democratic impulse to, uh, you know, you can't get something popularly passed. So let's just create some kind of back end program that works in the existing uh, administrative law uh, state so that you can help some people. So it can, you know, it can come from good impulses. But then, you know, all of a sudden you have this like me tested work requirement program that you can only submit to uh, one department on Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Uh, and it has to be a paper <laughs> application. And that's the only way that you can get it. And it's just like, what is happening here? And I think that like the like morass there and like Annie Lowry has written a really good article about this for The Atlantic called The Time Tax. It, you know, it leads to this like tax on people's time, like this hours and hours of time we're expecting people to fill out, to figure this stuff out, to fill out these forms, to call, to wait on hold with uh, people at, at agencies, with trial trying to get someone who speaks the language that you do with someone who's able to walk you through this process. And on the other end you have of the line, you have a, you know, a federal or state or local official who may be also extremely confused about how their own program works and like has like thousands and thousands of cases they're trying to get through and does not have the time to walk you through every piece of this. There's not even like an easy or simple way for you to get this information. And all of this adds up to a massive tax on individuals' time. And so, like, I mean, someone made this quip on Twitter. I wish I remembered who it was that, like, you know, it is Biden actually uh, raising taxes on people earning under $400,000 a year if you have uh, these types of programs levied. And people don't understand it that way. But, you know, you would think of it in your own life if that was something that you were engaging with on a regular basis. And I think, like, one unappreciated fact of this is that it makes me really wary of people talking about how people change their incentives in a structure where it's so complicated like this. Like, I just don't really believe that a bunch of people are like, I understand that if I work X amount of hours, I will get this specific tax credit. I like don't believe that that's true. It feels very hard for me to like get that, that on mass that that's happening, especially when you have like, I think over 50% of people who um, get the EITC use like large tax preparers to do it, which means that like, if you've gone through those preparers, like often you don't you don't have to know exactly where um, that return is coming from. You just get a return at the end and you're like, great, I just spent a bunch of money from Intuit. Like this is an anti-Intuit podcast, by the way. Um, <laughs> um, and, you know, I spent money for Intuit and then, uh, and then you know, I got this money back, but I don't know that the EITC is being given to me for this reason. And I think that like, you know, we're talking a lot about how we can manage people's incentives in a system that's set up to confuse incentives as much as possible. And so we should have a little bit more like, you know, wariness about the idea that, you know, all all of these people are going to be perfectly responding in the way that we want them to just because this one specific program has been means tested, even if it was like the quote unquote optimal means testing. I think one way to to look at this, too, is just like how people actually use these programs when they get work requirements and means testing. And this, this speaks to like Annie's point in the Atlantic with the time tax is like. There is research on this question. There is research that shows like there was a 2019 New England Journal of Medicine study that just looked at what happened when they added work requirements to Medicaid in Arkansas. And what they found is that they did not boost employment among like would-be applicants. What they did is just get more people off the rolls of Medicaid. 
And it's worth emphasizing that like 95% of people met the work requirement standards. So what this study actually showed is that people who probably met the work requirement and like they also had room for like community service and looking for a job and things like that. People who actually met the standard just didn't sign up for Medicaid, even though they likely qualified. And there are tons of stories about this. You can just look this up, but it, it is like if you ask people, why aren't you signing up for this program you're eligible for? The most common answer is, I didn't know I was eligible for it. Because once you start adding all these forms of means testing or these work requirements, people just get confused. They do not have all the time in the world to just constantly keep up with how these programs are changing. And you see this in with the Medicaid work requirements, but I think it's worth emphasizing. I mean, there's research on like all sorts of other programs going back to like the 90s welfare reform. And like just very often the the effect on employment is modest at best i would say and at the end of the day like the actual outcome here is fewer people are getting help that they need to like not be impoverished to just make ends meet for me it's just worth stepping back and like asking what you're trying to accomplish here because i think if you look at just a mansion view and take it at purely face value of like well yes parents should work and that would be the best thing for their children it's like yes that's technically true in some sense but is that actually what a work requirement does or does it also create all these other unintended consequences from the time tax or people not being able to get benefits they actually qualify for and i just wish that there was a little more attention to those kinds of unintended consequences when talking about this because i mean everyone listening to the show probably knows like there are lots of policies that sound nice in theory, but like once you put them into action in the real world, things go wrong all the time. And I think for for a lot of these particular work requirements, I'm not sure about means testing in general, but at least for work requirements, they just add so many complications to these systems that they often just leave people behind who you want to help, that the programs are intended to help. And it just seems like a huge problem for this. I think I would say, though, like, you know, there's this assumption that I think you just mentioned there that, like, you know, it is actually just better if we do get increased work happening at the lower end of the band. And, you know, I understand that there are some studies that correlate with, like, working parents and, like, certain other life outcomes here. But when we're specifically talking about, you know, a potentially a single parent stay, a lot of these are, are studies that look like single moms and whether they increase the amount that they work. The idea that, like, a single mom working often, which is, like, a, a low-end retail job or, like, a low-end job that's going to be extremely taxing, especially like you're talking about during a pandemic, you're dealing with like people who won't wear their masks or who refuse to they're vaccinated, even though you're required to ask them these questions. Like this is like shitty work. And if you want people to work and people like want more money, you should make work less shitty. If that's the goal of what we're getting at, I think it's like a big problem that also leads to the sort of kludgeocracy I talked about is that people will have these specific goals and then use these like really weird end runarounds to kind of like justify how it gets to that goal. If the goal is to get more people working, work needs to like suck less. And especially at the lower end of the income ladder where there's like, you know, discrimination, there's like sexual harassment happening rampantly in some jobs, um, you know, wages need to be higher. And we're seeing like that's that's inducing a lot of people to come into the um, labor market who weren't previously a part of it. So we know how to do that, too. And we're like actively choosing not to do it. And so like the justification, I think, that is used by I mean, even, you know, Manchin, I think, says this in his CNN interview, too, where he's like, don't you think that they should like work in order to qualify for some of these programs? And it's like we're talking about like children, right? We're talking about helping children. So like 
the idea is not even about like obviously no one wants the kids to work. It's about like some kind of moralizing about whether or not it's okay to receive this money while not actively in like investing your time in the labor market, especially when we know there are good outcomes too for when parents stay at home with their kids and are able to take care of them and be available to them for whatever their needs are, especially when they're at a really young age. So I think that there's this, you know, I think it's, 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 it is a, it is an assumption that I think often goes uh, unresponded to when people talk about this stuff. I agree, but it is just, I think it just like kind of shows a point that like at face value as a slogan, this idea of like, shouldn't you work? It sounds great to a lot of people. It's just like once you start digging into the layers of like what that work is, what work requirements actually do in the real world, that's when it, this whole thing starts falling apart. And like, I think that's what frustrates me with Manchin's comments generally is that he'll often say these things that like, I'm sure they poll great. I mean, he's <laughs> he's definitely politically savvy. He's a Democrat that won in West Virginia. Like whatever he's doing politically is is incredible. But at the same time, it's like, it's it can't just end with the politics here. You have to like actually interrogate the implications of your slogans and what you're saying out loud. And I, I think in this case, it just really falls apart. So let's take a break. Uh, and when we get back, we're going to interrogate the implications of a very, very old policy as part of our white paper. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian Software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200 or 2 million, or whether your team is around the corner or on another continent altogether, Atlassian Software is built to help keep you all on the same page from start to finish. That way, every one of your teams, from engineering and IT to marketing, HR and legal, can stay connected and move together as one towards shared company-wide goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. All right. White Paper of the Week comes from our good friends at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Uh, Jerusalem, tell us about it. Yeah, so um, this is not a housing podcast, but when I'm on, we're trying to talk about housing at least once. 
<laughs> so absolutely. Um, this is a new paper that comes from um, Price Fishback, who's at University of Arizona, um, Kenneth Snowden, um, who's at Greensboro, Jonathan Rose, who's at the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, and Thomas Storrs, who's um, in the Corcoran Department of History in Charlottesville. So they are looking at redlining, which I think has became a very popular concept uh, or understanding of history in the past decade or so, especially with books like The Color of Law, and especially with these really vivid maps that people were able to see delineating neighborhoods based on their creditworthiness or their riskiness for getting mortgages. And, you know, I think a lot of people know about these maps and often intuitively think that what how these maps were used is that the Federal Housing Administration um, and Hulk, which is the Homeowners Loan Corporation, um, that used these maps in order to give mortgages. And so um, there's been a lot of really good research coming out recently, including this paper, trying to figure out exactly what, how these maps were used, by whom, and what the effect was. And so these researchers look at three different cities. They look at Greensboro, North Carolina. They look at Peoria, um, Illinois, and they look at Baltimore, Maryland. And um, the reason for those three cities is because uh, that's where they could find the data. <laughs> uh, a lot of these maps actually were destroyed by the FHA in 1960 and during the Nixon administration because um, they probably knew they were guilty. They were being sued. Anyway, this is where they were able to find the maps. And uh, they basically found that the homeowner loan corporation maps, the Hulk maps, which are the map, the popular maps that everyone's seen, likely were not being used to redline. And that redlining and that kind of disinvestment happening in Black communities was happening previous to those maps being created, um, especially because we know that the maps were created after um, Hulk did the majority of their lending. FHA, though, we do know used and was potentially able to access some of these maps. Um, they aren't able to figure out whether or not they were able to use them en masse. But the reason why this is important is because, you know, it really gives more power to what was happening previous to the 1930s and post-Great Recession um, segregationist impulses in the federal government, and really talks about how this was going on for decades before the federal government ever really got involved. It wasn't just created in 1930. Segregationist impulses at the local level were creating disinvested Black neighborhoods under the guise of, you know, if you allow Black people into a neighborhood, it will lead to disinvestment. It will lead to lower property values. And, you know, it was not just a wholesale just made up in 1930 by Hulk. And so I think this is really cool and interesting research. It really underscores how much it, the importance of, of data collection. Um, and it's really wild to me that this is something that's in pretty recent history, and yet we still don't have a firm grasp on exactly um, who was using these maps, how they were used, and, uh, you know, the, the effects of them. It's it's a really cool paper. Turns out the Nixon administration loves destroying records. <laughs> Who could have thought? It's, it's, it's a mystery here. I can't believe. Sorry, I go, go ahead. That's a really good joke. Love a Nixon joke. Yeah, no, this is a really impressive paper. Um, I I'm a sucker for any time like economists and historians link up. I think American historians and historians of race in America have been been really interested in the housing market. Uh, in recent years, uh, this this paper cites a, a couple of great recent books uh, called Threatening Property and, and How the Suburbs Became Segregated by some Americanists working on this. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really great case study in how you can bring quantitative evidence to bear on sort of nuanced historical questions. And I, I particularly like that it's not just like a deflationary paper. Uh, you could imagine a, ver a version of this that pulls up these records, finds that Hulk, the, the agency that typically held responsible for redlining, did not uh, affect many mortgages uh, in, in practice, and sort of declare that a refutation of, of conventional history on, on redlining. And that's not what they do. They connect this into to broader FHA policies, 
uh, which did have a, a like sort of marked racially discriminatory impact. What's what's especially interesting to me in here and, and is sort of a theme in, in all kinds of redlining papers and, and literatures is, is the way that so racial discrimination is linked to the idea of creditworthiness, that the, the key mechanism they cite for the Federal Housing Administration uh, being motivated to redline is that they included rules that, that federally backed mortgages had to be economically sound. And there were just fewer mortgages going to lower paid black people, sharecroppers, low paid industrial workers in the North that were going to be economically sound due to the realities of, of racial discrimination in the workplace, racial discrimination in salary, and that that just built on itself. And the idea that you should only insure like financially sound loans is, when you phrase it like that, sort of facially race neutral. But this is a good interrogation of how facially race neutral rules like that can have like profoundly disparate impact uh, on, on communities. One of the lines that struck out to me in this paper is was basically saying that, like, look, in some ways, this shouldn't be that surprising because we know that systemic racism was in the U.S. before, like, the 1930s red line. I mean, just like the basic question, without any of these programs, would white people have widely accepted black neighbors? And we know the answer is no. I mean, people literally responded with violence to, like, minority groups moving into their neighborhoods. So I, I find that interesting because I think we often have like underlying racist attitudes to Dylan's points and we then pass these policies that sound facially race neutral and they have the effects you would expect under the circumstances of a systemically racist country or society or civilization and I think another example of this like a I mean obviously I write a lot about the war on drugs if you look at the policies the federal policies the state policies that built up to that a lot of the times they would be framed as like, no, look, drugs are a huge problem. And in fact, we want to help these black communities where drugs are a huge problem. And black lawmakers very often went along with this, were some of the strongest supporters for drug war policies. In effect, once you get a bunch of police departments going into these communities, and essentially, especially because a lot of these police departments are predominantly white, you end up getting a lot of racist outcomes, just like where black people are much more likely to be arrested, for example, for marijuana when they're not more likely to use it. And I, I think it's just it, it just goes back to like this thinking about the unintended consequences question to some extent. But also, I mean, there are legal standards at play here where like the Supreme Court has, especially the conservatives on the Supreme Court have generally argued that like if a policy is race neutral at face value, then like it cannot be racist, but obviously that's not true. This paper shows that, but there are also more recent policies. I think that that clearly show that. And I think this paper too. Um, they talk specifically about the Federal Housing Administration and uh, how before and after it had already had this kind of redlining methodology. And so Todd Mishney, he's a he's a professor at Georgia Tech University, and he wrote this paper called um, "The Roots of Redlining." He has a co-author, which I forget their name. Apologies, but um, one of the uh, one of the things that he he looks at, he looks kind of like they trace the history of this um, idea that uh, black people entering into neighborhoods reduced property values. And this is like an intellectual like movement that's 
like happens, right? Like in like, so essentially there's this guy named um, Richard Eli who, uh, you know, he trains tons of economists. He's a, he's an economist himself. He trains a bunch of historians and sociologists, including President Woodrow Wilson. Um, uh, no surprises there. And he's like coming, his intellectual movement is coming while like eugenics and scientific racism is, uh, you know, becoming a big, uh, is, is already a big intellectual movement in the United States. And um, you know, they are very concerned with the Great Migration. They're very concerned with African-Americans moving to northern cities after um, World War One. And he trains a bunch of these people who end up going to go work at the FHA, um, who have seen um, race-based zoning get struck down, who have seen, you know, violent enforcement of the color line, like Herman was talking about, in, in different places. And um, they start inculcating this idea as being an economic fact uh, that, uh, you know, realtors should understand that integration will lead to lower property values. And this is really important because the way that these maps are created is that the federal government is really leaning on local realtors to tell them um, what places are good and bad and 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 are credit worthy or not credit worthy. And the Hulk maps themselves are like a snapshot in time of after uh, the Great Recession. And you can just see, obviously, that Black people are concentrated very heavily in these places that are disinvested. But that's because there have been a bunch of government policies pushing them to the place where they are disinvested. And then after they congregate, they are then further uh, not able to access either public or private investment. And so I think that the, like this like historical research is like and economic research is really, really cool. Um, I think it like underscores yet again. What we know is that segregation, it was both an intellectual decision and that it had like massive government effects because I think primarily because a bunch of people who ended up going into government were given, quote unquote, rational backing for things that they likely already believed. And also, though, research like this kind of points us to realizing like how much harder this problem is to root out. Like it is not the case that without these redlining maps, you wouldn't have seen the kind of segregation um, you see today. Like I, I, I talked to one of the researchers um, in this paper earlier this week, and, you know, he, he was like, obviously, you can't make a definitive claim either way or something like that because the counterfactual is too difficult, like what would have happened. But it's unlikely that you would have seen, and a lot of redlining historians say this, that you wouldn't have seen this kind of segregative activity happening even with government intervention, uh, even without this government intervention of these Hulk maps and the FHA lending programs, which were already discriminatory. So I, I think that that's something that's really important to realize when we're trying to do even modern day desegregation policy is that it's going to require a full rethinking of what credit worthiness means um, and how how you kind of do these mortgages after centuries of, of disinvestment in populations. One sort of forward looking thing that, that strikes me about this is sort of the Hulk maps, as, as Jerusalem said, were, were based uh, in large part on surveys of real estate professionals, of realtors. And I think we know a little less about where the, the FHA maps came from, but I think it's it's safe to say that that was probably also a source sort of general views in, in academia, um, in uh, sociology, and in the real estate world influenced how they were drawing these things. We have figured out a much more efficient way to launder the prejudices and impressions of individual people interested in in topics like real estate into sort of a process, um, and it's called machine learning. <laughs> And uh, and one thing we we see again and again with various AI systems is that if you train them on data that is created by humans who are biased in, in certain systematic ways, the system you produce will be biased in certain systematic ways. My, my colleague Sigal Samuel has done a lot of, of great work on this. And you see this in specifically sort of creditworthiness situations as well. There's a recent NBER paper that was like a very a good like academic work, I, I don't mean to, to pick on the authors, 
but that was was showing that you could get a credit score that is more predictive of uh, whether someone will default on certain loans than normal credit scores uh, from FICO and, and other places if you use sort of machine learning. But part of why they found that is that FICO scores are not allowed to take the race of people <laughs> into account. They're not allowed to take certain protected characteristics into account for fear of repeating the kinds of discrimination that that these papers identify. And it's true that if you you take into account that race of people that you can predict sort of defaults on loans better because of sort of lower wages based on race, because of, of various other legacies of, of discrimination. But I, I'm worried that as sort of machine learning picks up and as people notice this, there's some of the you can't do that because that is like clearly discriminatory objections get washed away in the face of, well, it's better technology. Why wouldn't we want to use better technology? One thing that like what you're talking about, too, speaks to is just like we are now able to like come up with better solutions to these kinds of problems because we have this paper, even though it's about like a program that was like now 90 years ago. And it to me, it's just like, I don't know, this isn't exactly a controversial take, but sometimes <laughs> it's good to just like get the truth out there, even if it like de- <laughs> destroys some popular narratives. Because, okay, so like one example is mass incarceration. If you talk to activists, they love framing mass incarceration as a federal problem. And the reason they do that is because they would love to see federal criminal justice reform. And hey, me too. But if you actually look at the problem, mass incarceration was fueled at the state level. And like it most, the vast majority of incarceration in the US, nearly 90% is done at the state level. So it's just like, like you can't solve that problem unless you're willing to acknowledge that this is happening at the state level instead of the federal level. And I don't know, I think you see this a lot, especially with like when people are firing their hot takes on on Twitter, is like people will often buy into these like very clean narratives and they actively make it harder to solve problems by misrepresenting these problems. And I'm not saying that's that's what was happening necessarily with redlining. This is the example I'm giving is particular extreme. There's like a lot of good academic research on redlining. Lots of historians really looking at this issue. But I, I think for for the public perception of this, it is just I just wanted to emphasize that it's really important to get like the real story of how this happened out there so we can think of solutions. It's not just like a fact-finding exercise just because we find it interesting or fun, it is actively important to actually preventing something like this from happening again. The Weeds is a is a pro-truth podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, no truthiness. <laughs> well, uh, thank you guys so much. Uh, thanks, Herman. Thanks, Jerusalem. Um, thanks to our producer, Sophie. Uh, Sophie Lalonde. And we'll see you on Friday. Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise.